product hadn't really evolved much in those nine years. I don't think it really owned its brand narrative either. So normally if the second and third things are true, you're not still on top, but Tinder is. And so for me, it was a unique opportunity to come in. Can we shape the brand narrative while we're evolving the product and really accelerate the next 10 years of growth? Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. George, welcome to the show. June, thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Your wife, Mary, just got me a coffee and there's sweets on the table. I'm in your <laughs> giant Dallas home with all the giant Dallas homes next to us. It's quite a setting. Oh, it's awesome to have you here in Dallas. I was saying I feel like an idiot living in <laughs> California where this place would cost like $50 million. So um, anyway, well, maybe we'll be neighbors someday. That's right. We like it down here. So you're, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to read your background back to you. Okay. Do this every time. I will Give myself the benefit of the doubt that maybe I will not screw it up. Okay. So let's see how it goes. If I do, do, no problem. And then we go from there. All good. You got your BS in information systems management from Notre Dame. Spent four years there. You were just saying you listened to the Tom Mendoza episode, which is awesome. He's Mr. Notre Dame. Yeah. He's literally Irish all the way. Love following him on Twitter. Notre Dame football. Great source of information. I'll connect you to You should go to a football game with him. uh, Yes, please. Yeah, that'd be amazing. (laughs) Okay. Then you went to Abbott. You were on supervisory work, doing IT type stuff. You did five years of that. Then you went and got your MBA from the University of North Carolina, two years of that. Then I think you probably did an internship at That's right. P&G at Procter & Gamble That's right. from your first to your second summer. Correct. Right. In that time, you met a fellow who's going to come up in this interview later, I think. Kevin Hawkman. is that a- Hawkman, yes. Hawkman, okay. Yes. He was my marketing director as an intern. He, he hired me. He gave me the offer. I spoke to Kevin in oh advance of this for, <laughs> I don't know, 45 minutes. Oh and it was- <laughs> must see TV. It was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> That's I, awesome. <laughs> I was like, is this guy real life? His memory, his storytelling, it was spectacular. He's the best. He's, I'm glad you got to do it. You should, you should have him on the podcast sometime. <laughs> it was truly spectacular. And that's what I told him, dude, you might have to be on the show. You got some stories in you. highly entertaining. <laughs> and anyway, we'll get through your background here, but Kevin is the, what is he like runs KFC US? Yeah. He's the president for KFC US. Okay. So then you go to Procter & Gamble and your career really starts in earnest in my mind. You have a six-year run there where you really started as a lower man on the totem pole. Yeah, assistant brand manager. You kind of reset your career at that point. Yeah, I was a 29-year-old assistant brand manager. Is it fair to say you were lower on the hierarchy for marketing than most at that point? That's the entry level. And it's interesting at at P&G, that's the only way to come in because it's an up or out promote from within company. And so whether you come in as an undergrad or out of business school, you're all ABMs. (laughs) So And P&G takes their leadership development pretty seriously, don't they? Yeah, incredibly. I mean, I tell people it was like getting another MBA almost. It was awesome. So you start as fate would have it as, and I say as fate would have it as if Old Spice is what it 
is when you joined it. Um, <laughs> but you joined as assistant brand manager for the Old Spice brand of Procter & Gamble. Yep. And I want to make sure I get this right. In 2009, yep. you did that for three years. And I'm going to dig way into this. Then you went to become the global brand manager for P&G Mobile Marketing Strategy and Innovations. Yep. You did that for two years. Correct. Um, I think I was the first person that had that job at P&G. Like, okay. we did not know what mobile marketing was at that point. <laughs> I love it. And then you went to Yum Brands, right? Yeah, yeah. Then I went to Yum, um, went to KFC. And uh, Yum is like, what, Taco Bell, KFC? Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut. They've recently acquired a fourth brand, the Habit Burger Grill. Oh, yeah. But yeah, those are the three main ones, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, uh, and KFC. They have three offices uh, in the U.S., Louisville, which is where KFC U.S. is based. So that's where I went from Cincinnati, moved there. Here in Dallas, uh, they've got Pizza Hut, and the KFC Global Group is here. And then in Irvine is where Taco Bell is based. So you were the director of brand communications at KFC US for three years. That's right. Then the director of marketing for KFC Global for two years. Yep. Then you became the CMO of Pizza Hut for a year-ish. Yeah, a little more, probably like 15 months or okay. so. Yeah. Now, as of April 2021, a year ago? Almost, yeah, coming up on a year. A year ago, you became the CMO of Tinder. That's How did I correct. do? Okay. You did really well. You All nailed right. it. Can I give you a couple accolades here? You're not going to say them, so I will. You're the Ad Age 2018's Brand Marketer of the Year, Ad Age 2016's 40 Under 40. You, and I have been told this by several people, have basically revived several brands. Like I said, Old Spice was absolutely not what it was when you joined, nor was KFC, nor was Pizza Hut. There seems to be a pattern here. So really incredible. And I'm just excited to be doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you. So are we at the dinner table of your family, right? Is this the dinner table? Uh, this is the dinner table if people are over. Uh, dinner happens at that counter in at the, the kitchen. <laughs> when you were a kid, what was conversation like for George at the dinner table? Ooh, I would say our family didn't, we weren't a sit down for dinner every night kind of family. I think it happened more on the weekends. And a lot of it was driven because like my dad was a physician and he had a private practice and he worked a lot. <laughs> and so like most nights during the week, he was not home for dinner. And so it would be, you know, I had an older sister. And so we would eat sporadically based on what was going on during the week. But I'd say generally when we did sit down for a uh, family dinner, it was what's going on at school, what's going on with your friends or like what's happening with our family friends, you know, so it's just kind of basic stuff like that. But it definitely had a bent towards what's going on at school. That <laughs> was dad home. Most dinners are not home working. He would get home usually after I would eat dinner um, pretty late. And so he definitely kept longer hours during the week. And he worked on the weekends too, but that was mostly of our, our time when we really got to spend you know more quality time together. Mom Indian, dad Indian, both? Both. They both happen to be born in Singapore just due to their families yep. being there at the time that they were born. But they're from Kerala. So that's like the southernmost state in India, like on the western tip. And it's the one part of India where there are Catholics. So a lot of people get confused by my name, yeah. <laughs> like in terms of, yeah. like, wait, are you Hispanic, Indian? Yeah, yeah they, so, they get confused yeah. uh, by your name for different reasons than they get confused <laughs> exactly. by my name. Exactly. Yeah. My sister was born in India and then my mom and her came over when she was about a year. And so I was the first person born in the U.S. in my family. And then we would go back to India like every other summer for four to six weeks just to visit my grandparents and cousins. Most of my uncles and aunts were all back there. 
generally immigrant parents, but specifically different types of cultures. I think of Indian, Persian, Asian cultures are very education oriented. Yes. Was yours the same way? Because mine certainly was. I helicopter mom all over me. I think I appreciated them more as I got older in terms of, yes, we're very focused on education. My parents both are firm believers that education is the way and that will unlock whatever you want to go do. And so that was very clear. Like education was very serious in our house, but seeing others, I do think they were maybe a bit more progressive than I probably gave them credit for growing up. And it's something that happened. You know, I learned more over time as I got older and we can talk about college and some of the changes I had to make along the way, but no doubt education, there was no messing around. That was the number one priority. Kind of a crazy place to be born. Toledo, Ohio is, um, Well, it's Toledo, Ohio. (laughs) That's right. That's right. In middle America, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I remember talking to my dad about it. I was like, how did we, of all the places, how did we end up in Toledo? I don't know how much embellishment there is on the story, but the way he described it was when he was doing medical school in India, he knew he wanted to come to the U.S. to do his residency. That's where the best training and everything would be for doctors. And he said, there's just like this giant book that you could apply to of residency programs. <laughs> and he just applied <laughs> to all of these different hospitals all over the country. And sure enough, Toledo, Ohio <laughs> came back. And I've heard you say, and this is going back to the types of parents that generally immigrant parents are. Once you made the career switch yeah. to go into more of a business type of role, I've heard you say that your parents and your dad were incredibly understanding. Yes. There's actually like one pivot before that, that when I said kind of opened my eyes to how they were maybe more progressive and open-minded than I even gave them credit for. Like when I went to Notre Dame as a freshman, I mean, this sounds really stupid now, but I really didn't put a lot of thought into what I wanted to do. (laughs) Like I showed up there and at Notre Dame, you kind of have to pick a track at the beginning. It's not necessarily a major. And I was like, I don't know. I just picked pre-med. Like a lot of our family friends were physicians. It's kind of what I grew up seeing. Wasn't because I was like super interested in it. I just kind of figured, oh, I'll do this. I'm sure the genes will kick in (laughs) at some point. And then three weeks or whatever into college, I just spectacularly failed my first chemistry exam. Really bad. (laughs) It was just like a wake up call. Okay. I don't think this is for me. I'm going to drop this and I got to go actually think about what I want to do. Making that phone call home to talk to my parents about it. I hadn't really had a failure on that level before. I don't know. I did well in school and like things had been going along pretty well. And I was not quite sure what their reaction was going to be. And they were incredibly understanding and supportive. My dad especially was like, if you're not a hundred percent committed to being a doctor, you should not be a doctor. He's like, I love being a doctor. It's a lot of school. It's a lot of work. You got to go find something that you really want to go do. And to hear that in a moment when you've failed and you're not sure, like there's lots of things going through your mind, especially, you know, you're 18 and you're in college away from home for the first time. It was pretty awesome just that they were like understanding, supportive, helped me think through it and then found my way to the business school and and went on. So, yeah, that was like the first time really they kind of helped me through that. And so I think when I switched careers, it was somewhat of a similar conversation in terms of just more about finding something that was going to really excite me and and that I was passionate about. Met your wife, Mary, in college, freshman year? I did. First weekend of freshman year. Pretty wild. Freshman orientation weekend. We met at a dorm party. Wow. uh, And we've been together. 30 years? uh, Let's see. 1998. So we've been married for 16. 24 years since you met. Yeah. Two kids? 
Two kids. They yep. might run in here at some point. Yeah. Texas is yeah. literally freezing over right, right now. That's right. We Texas. went from 87 degrees yesterday yep. to 18 degrees today. Yeah. You know, a little freezing rain. Cuban decided <laughs> that on his day trip to Dallas, he's not going to bring a jacket because <laughs> there's no way in hell that it could right. actually change 60 degrees right, in right. a day. That doesn't happen I literally, anywhere. I looked at it and I'm like, that's not true. This yeah. is like one of those things where you just don't accept the weatherman. Yeah. I should have. Yeah. I should have. It's for real. I should have. Um, yeah. Two kids. Eleanor is 11 and Wilson is eight. Well, hopefully I get to meet him. You have said in the past, if you could have coffee with one person today, it would be your dad. Tell me more about that answer. So I lost my dad 16 years ago. And so it was, gosh, 2006. Shortly before business school. Yeah. And we had talked about business school and we had talked about me leaving my job, switching careers. You know, he was somebody I leaned on just to talk through that. And then, yeah, kind of had to go through that process without him. But yeah, I lost him in 2006. And so somebody had asked me that in a previous conversation I had. And the typical answer is you think of a celebrity or somebody like that. And to me, it was like, man, if I could just have one coffee, one more conversation with him now, 16 years later, being a dad What'd you later ask in him? my career, I mean... Oh man, I'd ask him. Would you ask him or would you tell him what's going on in your life? Would you be more excited to give him all the updates of how things have changed? Or would you be more like, hey, what did you do in this situation (laughs) when I did this as a kid? It'd be both. For sure, it'd be telling him all this. Like my dad's name was Wilson. So like my son, you know, we named my son after him and telling him about the kids and like the things I see in them that remind me of him or that he'd just get a total kick out of or like talking about my career. The hardest things for me or like saddest things for me is like the things that like the fun things that happen in my career and the things I've gotten to be a part of. He'd be my first call like every time. And he'd be the person that would get the so most stoked on you, you know, and he'd love it. And so that's been the hardest part. So, yeah, it'd be talking about that, talking about like, man, what did you? you do like when I was going to high school and having kids this age we never got to talk about me being a dad just because I wasn't we weren't there you know I just gotten married at that point and so it's just having being able to talk uh, about that stuff and the career stuff I think would be pretty great but he was at the wedding with you and Mary he was and because Mary and I have been dating so long you know we'd been together through college yeah. like she'd been on family vacations with us she was part of the family even before yeah. so that's great that she got to have a great relationship with him, even though it was only shortly after we got married that he passed away. How'd that shape your worldview? You were, I'm just going to guess, like 26, 26, seven? yeah, 26. 26 years old, like yeah. still a very formative time in your life. In parallel to that, your career is up in the air a yeah. bit. You're figuring it out. Then you lose some form of stability and infrastructure in your life. Yeah. Looking back, it's one of those things where in the moment you don't always fully appreciate it because you're just figuring out a way to get through it. But it was tough. It's by far the worst thing and the hardest time in my life, just going through that loss of my dad. And then also making a really big, at the time, what felt like a pretty risky move, like a career move, right? Like you don't really know how it's going to turn out going to business school and switching careers at 27, 28, 29, that age. Like, So yeah, it was challenging. And I think part of it was helpful was he was helpful for me and talking through it and thinking through it and helping me see maybe it wasn't as risky as it seemed on the surface. And like, actually the bigger risk would be just like not doing anything about it, you know? Kind of cool to think back that maybe one of the greatest gifts that he gave you was the gift of approval to go do your own thing. 
Totally. And it's helped me, you know, I've made different moves throughout my career and it changes your perspective on things. At least it changed my perspective on things for sure. Like just the place that uh, family has and the way I think about career and, and family and even some of the lessons he gave me about, you know, later before he died, like talking about just the amount of time he spent and like if he could do things differently and I want to spend more time at home than maybe he was, he did or he didn't realize all that. When you were getting older and talking to him and he was reflecting back on the time that he wished he had spent a little bit more with you at the dinner table. Yeah, because he was sick for a little bit before he passed. And so we had conversations we wouldn't have normally had just in the course of like normal day to day and talking about different things. And yeah, it was like things he'd learned over time and things he'd think about differently. And, and that's helped shape the way that I've approached career and family and what's important and what you prioritize. Super cool. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. You get to MBA and you find Procter & Gamble, which is, it's in Ohio, right? It's in Ohio, yeah, in Cincinnati. So, yeah, it's in Cincy. Yeah. So back then, I'd be curious now to talk to people in business school, at least when I was in business school, if you were looking to get into marketing, there were a few like kind of bastions of brand marketing, like P&G, Unilever, Kraft, like these like big institutions that like really knew how to build brands. And so- you think today, like the sexy ones are like Warby Parker and I don't know, Allbirds, like the next era of D to C? That's why I'm curious. Here's my take of having moved into tech for the first time is I think there's something about the brand building fundamentals that I think might be missing in some of these like newer, sexier startups or tech brands or D to C that they've missed early on. Like there's what? a lot of tech brands that grew because the product market fit was so good yeah. and like it just skyrocketed and then they kind of retrofit the brand and what they want totally. to be after. Right. And it's like, Oh crap, we need to have a brand. We need to stand for something. Yeah. Whereas in the CPG world, you would have the brand yep. framework at the beginning and you'd build up that way. And so to me, it's funny. I, I think P&G is looked at as probably like a you know older, stodgier company at this point, but I think there's still a ton that can be learned and applied. Of course, there's things that they probably need to adapt to as well. But I think from a brand building standpoint, like to me, I could go show you all the brand one pagers, brand positionings for all the brands I've worked on. And they're all built from that foundation of like how P&G thinks about building a brand. It's funny because a topic of conversation that I always come back to in this podcast is around talent, recruiting talent, because ultimately the people around you are a composition of who you are as a leader. Yeah. And so I've always said, if I were to ever leave Kleiner and go back to another startup, it would absolutely be for a mission-driven company. Uh -huh. Because when you have a mission that deeply resonates with people, you can outkick your coverage with who you can recruit. Totally. And retain. <laughs> and retain. Yeah. I've never thought about it from the standpoint of your mission is a brand. It is. That yeah. you're intentional and you cultivate. Yeah. An example, and I've heard you talk about this, which is actually why I wore my Shinola watch today. <laughs> what a great brand. Yeah. Great mission. Made in the USA. Right. Raw authentic, unapologetic, simple, clean yeah. curves, yeah. not much to it. Yeah. I think there's something to that. That is a mission. I there think is. that is a purpose that people can get behind. Yeah. It's why are we all getting up and doing what we're doing? What are we doing this for? And I just think a lot of brands or a lot of companies don't think about that 
at the onset. And to your point, I think if you have that really clear, it's not a marketing thing. I think that's the big misconceptions. When I got to Tinder and I was talking about brand positioning, I think everyone assumed it was a marketing exercise, an advertising exercise. No, this needs to be a compass for the whole company. And so whether it's 100%. the product organization deciding what features we should launch or decisions that we need to make or when we're trying to hire, attract new talent, like we need to go tell them what we stand for. And it's what, our what mission. mission. It's how yeah. we represent ourselves. Exactly. To yeah. our customers, to our constituents, to our stakeholders, to everybody. Totally. I've never thought about it that way until I was reading a bunch of your work and it reshaped my thinking on the way, because I always thought you have to be a mental health startup or an ESG startup mm-hmm. that's yeah. eliminating or helping solve climate crises. You can create a brand that identifies and stands for something and a mission. Yeah. With anything. Yeah. A watch company. Right. The functional purpose of this is to tell you what time it is. Yeah. But I think you and I have these watches because I think we think it says something more yep. about us. That's one of the reasons I was drawn to marketing and brands is I geek out on like why do people love the brands they love? Everything from the sneakers and the clothes you wear to the everyday household products that you use. There's these weird attachments and some brands play a bigger role in your lives than others, but that whole thing is just fascinating to me. I want you to tell the story of how you met Kevin, your boss, because it's hilarious. And I think it is a very interesting transition point to talk about what the hell happened at Procter & Gamble and your really your crazy run there. Okay. Is that fair? It's fair. Yeah. I, I hope I get this right. So I was an intern on Old Spice. So you, you basically just get assigned. You get told you got an internship at Procter & Gamble and then they just scatter the interns across the brands. And is it fair to say Old Spice was a dog at that point? Yeah. I had friends, you know, you make friends with the class that you have people that were on like Tide and Pantene and whatever, insert other brand name. They're like, oh yeah, like, like I scored. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm on, I'm on Old Spice. <laughs> and, and they're like, oh, cool, cool. <laughs> but the good news was in hindsight, it was just the perfect timing to be there. So I'm on Old Spice. It's got an awesome group of people. James Moorhead was our brand manager. And you could tell that they were building a culture. The brand wasn't where they wanted it to be yet, but it was like you could tell there was something good happening. We have these bullpens throughout the building. So the beauty division has a whole floor and Old Spice technically fell under the beauty division. Secret, deodorant and Olay and Pantene and all the, you know, all these different brands. And there's the Old Spice bullpen. They didn't have a seat for me in the Old Spice bullpen. There were no desks available. And so right next to the Old Spice bullpen was the secret bullpen, which was all happened to be all women working on that brand. And then there was the communal <laughs> group printer <laughs> that, that everyone had to go to pick up their printing job. And they basically wedged a chair <laughs> like next to the group printer and I had some desk space And then there was like a divider, like a cubicle divider, but it was like a clear divider. It was like a window. And there was some poor woman on the other side that I was like basically just (laughs) staring at all day. (laughs) So that was my desk. I was like, man, is this like hazing or what's going on? It really was like they legitimately didn't have room. And they also thought it was funny. And so anybody that came by to get a print job, it was so awkward because a lot of times you get there before the job's done. So they're just standing there. And so inevitably they would say hi, just to break the awkwardness. All day long, I'm having these like 45 second conversations with people. They're like, hey, how are you doing? You know, and they look at the nameplate. They're like, George, George, how are you doing? I got to know a lot of people that way. Or somebody would come up, they're like, oh, it's out of paper. (laughs) They just stand there. (laughs) 
like, uh, oh, I got you. I got you. Okay, I, let, let me get that for you. I got used to that. That was the summer. And then Kevin came in. He came in like halfway through my summer. He had been in Arkansas working on the Sam's and Costco team. And then I uh, had moved back to Cincinnati to be the marketing director over all the brands like Old Spice, Gillette, Secret, and all those brands. And so he came in like halfway through the summer and his first day there, I think they did like an announcement where they announced everything to us. And then I was sitting there and then he came over to pick up a job on the printer. And <laughs> instead of just having the awkward 45 second conversation, he like legitimately was like, Hi, I'm Kevin. I'm new here. Just wanted to say hello and introduce myself. What do you do? What do you work on? I'm like, oh, I'm George. I'm the intern on Old Spice. And we kept talking. And then he's like, hey, I'm walking back over to my office. And I just like, all right, I'm going to follow him over there and like talk for like an hour or something. And no agenda. He legitimately just wanted to get to know me. It was like the first time somebody at that level, obviously my team, I was really close to my team at that point. But to that point, I hadn't engaged with anyone at like the marketing director or higher level in a really meaningful way. It just struck me, man, this guy's like brand new. He's probably got a gazillion things going on. He's got a whole new organization. And he took the time just to get to know me. (laughs) The reason I brought that up is because, well, it warms my heart. And because I've been the dude that someone just talked to and just took a chance on. Yeah. Most of us kind of are. Yeah. It's a good reminder. It is. 100% is. And I try to repay that back in any way I can like you well, know and selfishly it's good for you you never know where the next George is <laughs> for sure would, whatever printer he's next to <laughs> for sure yeah and you ended up going to work with Kevin for two or three more jobs right yeah I mean he's outside of my family he's probably the biggest impact on my life and my career for sure and like you said not only did he take a chance on me he's given me chances and over and over again so you and your team execute the smell like a man campaign, correct? We do. And it is P&G's first ever Emmy for best commercial. It is the first Cannes film winner in 50 years or something. I, I don't know. This is not my world. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. Uh, can, the Can Lion. Can, can, is, yeah, yeah okay. Can Lion. Man, is, that must be really gauche for me to say Cannes. No, no, okay. No, no worries. That's like the big advertising award yeah. thing. And so I think it? It, it won the film Grand Prix, film being like a commercial. I think everyone knows this one that's listening. It resulted in over 40 million online views. Retail sales increased over 20%. And it basically set up Old Spice as the category leader. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. If you watch an Old Spice commercial today, I think they still use his voice and like you still see him. Isaiah Mustafa, the guy in the commercial, like that character, if you will, or persona has carried on for over 10 years now, which is absolutely crazy. The story of how it came together is completely improbable. Like people wouldn't believe it. So I came back. This is like coming back now after business school. So I come back to Old Spice. I'm the ABM assistant brand manager managing the body wash business. Three fourths of the business was deodorants. One fourth was body wash. And the one fourth that was body wash was getting destroyed by Axe. Axe was just killing us. And so like Axe had totally disrupted. Axe was selling like sex in a bottle. Sex in a bottle. That's it. And To their credit, they had completely disrupted the category. So if you looked at that point at the aisle for deodorants and body wash, for some odd reason, someone a long time ago decided that men wanted to buy deodorants with scent names that sounded like geophysical acts of nature. So it'd be like mountain rush or glacial <laughs> falls and like the stuff that made no sense. What does that mean? What what was a glacial fall smell like? And so Axe comes in and they, their packaging's all black and silver 
it looks completely different. So if you look at the shelf, it looks like your eye just goes right to it. And they come up with more modern names. And then they've got this whole, they create a whole new category with body spray. They get all these teenage boys to just spray body spray all over themselves, which is a whole- the commercials inc- where they, the teenager, the teenage boy would spray himself and then run down the hall of the Five high school and then like would, girls would just start <laughs> yeah, jumping yeah, on top of right. him. It was literally the promise <laughs> of put this on and you will get attacked by women. Like that's how easy it is. And in a way it's smart, but it was just like a total disruptor. And so we were in a bad spot on the body wash business, particularly because Walmart and Target, they were like, you guys are already doing badly. And now we've just gotten word that Unilever who owns Axe is also now they are going to launch Dove for Men which Dove is this multi-billion dollar female powerhouse brand and they're going to launch into the men's category. And so they're going to spend more money in their first month than you guys are spending all year. They're going to launch in the Super Bowl. We were like legitimately at risk of losing shelf space, which in CPG world, that's death. That's the end of it. If you lose your spots on the shelf to your competitor, like you're screwed, right? Because that's the only place. Tough getting that back too. Yeah, for sure, right? Because then you've got to go prove why they should give that spot back to you. So it was like a few months into this job, I'm just out of business school and it's crisis mode. And it's like, what are we going to do? And so at P&G, they called it a profense strategy, proactive defense. <laughs> it's like the way to think of it. It's coming. You've gotten word that there's a competitive launch. What are we going to do as a way to blunt that? And so we get incremental money from the company. Or we're going to come up with a campaign that kind of combats this new Duff for Men launch. And the key to the brief, when we were briefing our agency, we thought it was a throwaway stat, but it ended up being what sparked the the creative idea was we saw that 60% of men's body wash was purchased by a woman, meaning a mom, a wife, or a girlfriend. They were the actual ones making the purchase at the shelf. So then the agency was like, a lot of those women priority buy Dove (laughs) for themselves. So they're probably going to make it real easy just to buy Dove for men for their guys. So it had never crossed our minds that we should ever be talking to women because like Old Spice was just like men, men, men. It was just like, we're just going to talk to guys. And so they came back to us and they were like, we need to talk to men and women. That was like their conclusion. And Wyden and Kennedy was the advertising agency. They're genius. And they came back with an idea. They pitched us two ideas. One was to both men and women. Yep. And one was, it actually ended up, oddly enough, being close to what Dove for Men launched with. Yeah. It was like this evolution of man idea. Yeah. We bought that one. They slept on it, came back, and they're like, we sold you the wrong idea. We want an, another chance. We really think you should reconsider, which rarely happens. An agency does not unsell work. <laughs> you know, yeah. usually they're like- It's already done. It's done. Like, done. Don't oversell Game it over. now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right? And you got to imagine, if you remember that commercial, <laughs> try and imagine seeing that written- on a page with nothing moving, the script, and then all the description of the things happening in the background. Describe it, will you? So it's a guy. He the opens, one, this is the one that you ultimately, they repitched and you yeah, landed on. Yeah. The, the famous commercial. Yeah, yeah. So it starts with a man. He says, hello, ladies. Hello, ladies. He's in a shower. He's holding Old Spice body wash. But then the whole scene changes. You know, he's got no shirt on. A sweater drops over his neck. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on a boat with the man your man could smell it. He's got jeans on underneath. Now, all of a sudden, he's on a boat. Then he's got a clam in his hands. It's an oyster with two tickets to that thing you love. Look again. The tickets are now diamond. All these things happen. He ends up on a horse, and he's talking a mile a minute, and there's all these things happening, and it's all happening super fast. He's talking super fast. And they're in Portland, Oregon. We're in Cincinnati, Ohio. We're looking at a piece of paper that has this script with all of the descriptions on it. And they're reading it to us and describing it to us. And we're like, we just didn't get it. We just couldn't see it. 
And then they came back the next day and they were like, here's what we're going to do. Read through what's happening in the scene. And then now we're going to read this like this guy's going to read it. Like we envision him reading it. They just took us through it. And, and it was like a really good lesson of conviction in your ideas and believing in your ideas. And so we buy it. And then after they shoot it, they come back and we got to review the rough cuts of it. And I'll never forget that meeting. We watch it. And again, we're doing this over the phone, right? We watch it. We're on mute. It's like me, my boss, his boss, and we're all looking at each other like, what did we just watch? Again, it just surprised us. It was like, it seemed like it was going too fast. It wasn't touched up or anything. And we were just like, I don't know. I don't know. We just watched and like they're on the other end. Uh, they're on the phone. They're like, hello, you guys there? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah, hang on, hang on. And we kind of freaked out again. So that night to uh, James Moorhead was our brand manager. We got the other ABMs, there are four of us, and we went to a bar that night. We took our laptops and we put down our credit cards at the bar. Two of us went to one corner of the bar with one laptop. Two of us went to the other corner with the other laptop. And we just told people we were from a market research firm and we just bought people drinks. One group did guys, one group did women. And we just brought them over. We're like, you just got to watch this commercial and just tell us what you think. And we just watched people react to the commercial, the rough cut. And we then came back and compared notes. We wanted to see, did men like it, women like it? What was the deal? And you could just tell from people watching it. They were laughing. They loved it. They loved him. The women loved him. The guys loved him. We were like, okay, I think we got something. <laughs> and then we did it. And it's hilarious because most people think it aired on the Super Bowl. We didn't have enough money for it to run on the Super Bowl. It was basically like run it on the Super Bowl once and not again, or run it for a month or two. And we decided not to run it on the Super Bowl but we put it out on Facebook <laughs> back in the days when you could just put something out to your fans on Facebook right, for free. Right. And it got passed around so <laughs> much on YouTube and Facebook that weekend of the Super Bowl that it got included in the roundups on Monday because people were like, that was the best commercial I saw all weekend. Yeah. And not only was it the best commercial they saw all weekend, but it was maybe the best commercial you've ever made in your life. Yeah. And it's crazy because you looking back now, everyone would be like, that was a no brainer. That was obvious, of course. But I guarantee you, you could ask Kevin. I remember showing it to him and showing it to other people. Like, it was not obvious. <laughs> Isn't that feeling sometimes? And this is the most exacerbated in your line of work, which is so much ambiguity. Doesn't it feel crippling sometimes? Because you're like, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. 100%. Totally. And it's hard because everyone can have an opinion on a commercial. Right. Know, I'm not going to go inspect a accounting spreadsheet or a operations manual, but everyone can watch a commercial and be like, I like it. I don't like it. <laughs> and like, the more cooks in the kitchen, usually the worse the end product is going to be in my experience. And so like, I'm a big believer in gut instinct or like gut reaction. Like you don't overthink it. And But your gut was telling you maybe not. In that case, it was like, the gut was like, oh man. This is either a home run right, or we right. are screwed. Right. It's And isn't that almost the most scary decision? Because you're like, this could break my career. It hasn't even gotten started yet. Yeah. I think that was one of the moments that it, like, it made you feel like, or you learn that if you're not a little uncomfortable, you're probably not pushing hard enough. Yeah. We'd all be lying if we said we knew it was going to be a Well, and it's easy to armchair run. quarterback it in hindsight. Yeah. Similar to the Coinbase For sure. QR code, right. this last Super Bowl that right. just bounced around the TV. Now, obviously, it was, I think, the number one most successful Super Bowl ad this year. Yeah. But 
I can't imagine they're sitting in a room being like, this is genius. You I know, mean, like, this is, yeah. this is it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And like the other thing, they bought a 60. <laughs> that's 60 like, seconds. Yeah. That's Which, 7 what, what million. What does that mean? Like Just seven, really expensive. That's like over 7 million bucks. That's no joke you're saying. Yeah. That's like that would be, insane. yeah, like that. I mean. Who buys 60s? Right. And with that idea. <laughs> it's one thing to buy a 60 of a QR code right. bouncing around the screen. To me, that took it over the top. It was like, I remember just like watching it. And of course I scanned it, but then I'm like, it's still going. Like this is still going. Yeah. <laughs> like it's still there. Yeah. And you never know. There's no way to test. Is that going to land the way you, th- you want it to? Incredible story. It's <laughs> actually an incredible story. And there's other things that like, this could be a four hour episode. So uh, I'm pissed. Do you want to tell the story of the mobile marketing stuff? Well, I mean, it's just funny. There wasn't a job like that. And they were like, well, we need to essentially help our brands think about <laughs> how we show up on mobile. And a lot of it was like, our website needs to show up on a phone right. properly. <laughs> right. And that went, it was all the way from that to the Oral-B business that was doing, starting to do connected toothbrush, connecting like with an app for people that were super into like dental hygiene. One of the things I'm like most proud of, like it didn't actually materialize at, at P&G, but like I met Shay Huang. I don't know if you know him. He started Boxed. No. So they were like Costco online, essentially. Yeah. You could buy like yeah, club, yeah, yeah. club size stuff online and deliver to your house. And he was like super early on. We met at one of those speed dating things with startups. And I just remember he was super impressive. Boxed, I was like, this is definitely coming. And I wanted to, you know, I like got him a meeting at P&G and it was like one of his first meetings at a big CPG. Now he's, you know, sold the company for a gazillion dollars and he's doing great. To me, like it was just a fun job because it was like, you're on the cutting edge. It's, and it's the funny gamut. to think that that was even the cutting edge at that exactly. point. Exactly. Like looking back on it now, it just feels silly. Do, do you think going back to the Axe commercial, you think you could air that commercial today with the high schooler walking down and girls just like jumping on top of them? No, I, yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I think... I haven't kept up that much with what Axe is doing now, but I think they've ditched the sex in a can. Okay. I don't know for I think sure. It's a tough, I think it's a tough needle to thread right now. Yeah. I To me, it's I think like, it's just kind of like, you're not really paying attention. No. For us, Old Spice, going back to like brand positioning, like what's our purpose? You know, what's the Old Spice brand purpose? What's our brand character? For us, it was helpful to have something to push up against totally in them and you know so what's interesting to me is that was less than 10 years ago things change fast that was not that long ago right and that was like thought of as really genius at the time totally and now it's like a faux pas it's really out of touch yeah Yeah. exactly and i what i'm proud of is i know just because i know some people are still there like the old spice brand positioning that we put in place is still in place and i do think that's a good sign of like like timeless that something that can hold up and and doesn't become irrelevant because like old spice's brand purpose was to help guys navigate the seas of manhood how you do that's going to change but that's something that'll be you know there forever. So you go to Yum Brands. Kevin recruits you to come work for him at Yum Brands. There's a story that he relayed to me. Okay. That I want to say to you. <laughs> okay. And then you can kind of fill in the blanks. Okay. Sounds good. So he basically comes to you and he says, George, what are we going to do to revive KFC's brand? Is basically the goal. That's the stated intent of what we need to do. It was in a similar spot to where Old Spice was, not in the dominant position. Correct. You had moved, if I'm not mistaken, and your apartment or your house wasn't ready yet. And so you were staying at his place. When I took the job to come down to work for KFC, the family wasn't going to move right away. So I was just going to go back and forth between Cincinnati and Louisville. They were going to set me up with, you know, a temporary apartment. That wasn't ready yet. You crashed at his place. That was not ready. He's like, just stay with me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) So he was saying that his wife, Kevin's wife, asked if 
George is going to be home for dinner tonight. Yeah. And he said, uh, no, he needs to go for an emergency shoot. What was that shoot? So they'd already worked through like this idea of we're going to bring back the values of Colonel Sanders and the Colonel is going to play a role in us getting KFC back to prominence. And so they had done a shoot with Daryl Hammond. He was an SNL guy, you know, actor, and he was playing Colonel Sanders and they'd shot a bunch of stuff. But what they realized was this a pretty big like relaunch of the brand. They did not have the launch spot figured out like they just didn't have it they had a bunch of other stuff but there's nothing that really signaled kfc's head in this new direction kfc's back and so this campaign was supposed to go live the following week i remember when i started i told kevin i was like i'd love to take three or four weeks off before i start this new job he's like i can give you everything you need except i need you to start <laughs> i need you to start next week and so i came in and i was in louisville for a day and then I got on a plane and flew out to Portland and we had to do an emergency shoot to try and capture the launch spot for this whole new campaign and relaunching of the brand. We shot it on a Tuesday. We shot a few different spots, but like this kind of Colonel Sanders giving this manifesto of like why he's back and he's back to fix KFC. And it was, it was kind of announcing everything. And then by the time I flew back, I want to say it was maybe Thursday, I had to get to my car at the airport and then get on the phone and watch the rough cuts from my car because that's how fast we had to move to get this on air the next week. And I remember we were sitting in the car. I was pretty nervous because I realized like this is a big deal. There's a lot of pressure to get this right, you know, and I watched the rough cut. We all watched it and it was like, we got it. We knew we had it. Howdy, folks. It's me, Colonel Sanders. (coughs) I've been going for a while and boy, howdy, have things changed. Nowadays, you got your International Space Station, your double-sided tape, your cargo pants. You seen these pants? That's too many pockets. But what you don't always seem to have these days is my Kentucky Fried Chicken. Was there a point of deliberation of whether the colonel should be the same person or a rotating set of people? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we talked about it. And I heard you said it should be rotating. Yes. Uh... And I heard that was not... (laughs) Well, not everybody agreed with you, including the CEO of KFC. <laughs> Correct. He thought you were crazy, and yes. Kevin may have yelled at you. Yeah, Kevin might have yelled at me, and Kevin, <laughs> Kevin might have asked me if I was trying to sabotage the brand. <laughs> yeah, that's a true story. <laughs> These are interesting conversations to have within the first few months of taking on a new job. So the agency felt pretty strongly about it. I did too. Like, It's weird. I think, again, it's one of those risk things. I think some people look at it as really risky to like change. We looked at it the other way or it's like you're locking yourself into one person looking ahead two, three, four years down the road. Is that going to give us the flexibility we want to do all the things we want to do? Or if we open this thing up, could this actually be another way to keep this fresh and do new things? So like you want Pierce Brosnan for every James Bond movie exactly, or you want to be right? able to reset yeah. them? Yeah, we're good with you know, Toby Maguire. Now yeah, all of a sudden you yeah. have four of them and yeah. they're, all, they're on the same movie now. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's like, I think what made it <laughs> what got the reactions it did when I brought it up was we had just launched this thing. You have to think ahead. You don't have a ton of time to make all these decisions. So that was a that was an interesting conversation, to say the least. <laughs> Kevin said that you came back, saw the rough cuts, knew you had it. And I don't know if you know this story, but his wife, Kevin's <laughs> wife said, I think George just saved your job. <laughs> Well, Anne is very nice. A little known fact, Anne's the best marketer in the Hockman household. And uh, that's that's an undisputed fact. Uh, but, I love uh, that. Last thing that Kevin 
told me, and I know you're saying it's not true. I, I disagree. I believe it is true. He said that you were so good that he writes your mother a letter <laughs> thanking you every few years. Is that true? This is true. This, this speaks to how good of a person Kevin is uh, more than anything. Like he's just that kind of person. Like I said, he's a friend, a mentor, coach to me. And like, well, he's no dummy. He's going to, he's going to, <laughs> trust me, he's going to try to hire you again. He's, I mean, he's not he's, done yet. But it's true. I'll get calls from my mom every couple of years and she's like in tears. She's like, Kevin just wrote me the nicest note. Like, you're never going to believe it. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did a great job at KFC. Then you became the director of marketing for KFC Global rather than KFC US. That's right. Uh, that's what brought me down here to Dallas. And then you sent a chicken sandwich to space. We did. We launched the Zinger. That was actually when I was still on the US team, but like we launched the Zinger sandwich, which is everywhere in KFC around the world. They know what the Zinger is except the US. And we wanted to make a big deal of it. So we sent that sucker to space with Rob Lowe as our celebrity colonel. Incredible. <laughs> and I'm going to skip through Pizza Hut just for time's sake. But I heard you did the exact same thing all over again. Just absolutely murdered it, re- resurrecting this brand. So you go to Tinder. Mm-hmm. And I am going to guess it's because you wanted to change the pace. You want to do something different. And I imagine that there is an allure to what you could learn and how you could think about these problems more first principally at a tech company. Totally. Is that fair? Totally fair. I'd always been interested in tech. The opportunity came up and it was a really, I thought it was a unique situation where you don't normally find a brand that's that globally iconic. It's nine years old. It's number one in a hundred and whatever countries, but the product hadn't really evolved much in those nine years. I don't think it really owned its brand narrative either. So normally if the second and third things are true, you're not still on top, but Tinder is. And so for me, it was a unique opportunity to come in Can we shape the brand narrative while we're evolving the product and really accelerate the next 10 years of growth? feels like you kind of find these undiscovered gems a little bit. (laughs) Like you just got to like blow it off, blow it off, blow off the dust a little bit. Well, it's funny. The CEO at Yum, when I was there for part of the time, Greg Creed, he used to say this thing, take the job no one else wants. Now, I'm not saying no one else wanted these jobs, but like the spirit of what he's saying is there's something to be learned and gotten from the things that don't always look like the sexiest things out there. I couldn't agree more. And one of the questions that I asked, like I had the CRO of Stripe on Mm -hmm. as an example. And I'm like, Mike, you just joined Stripe. It's going to be the most valuable public company probably ever. Mm -hmm. It's like a hundred billion dollar private company. Can you go up? (laughs) You know, like, is there a lot of margin to improve what you're doing here? (laughs) Right, Right, right. I will say all of that being said, What I learned about Tinder blew my mind. Okay. Some of these stats are incredible. Highest grossing non-gaming app in the world. As of 2021, Tinder has recorded more than 65 billion matches worldwide. Are you kidding me? It merged with Match Group in July of 2017. There was a little bit of like of what the valuation was when that happened. There's yep. a lawsuit, et cetera. Yep. That's okay. Yep. So I can't really peg the exact amount that it was valued out. What I can say is that in 2020, Tinder had an annual revenue of $1.35 billion, Yeah. Which, by the way, I think that's like more than Snowflake, just for perspective. <laughs> and accounted for 58% of Match Group's 2020 revenue of $2.34 billion. And at that time... Match Group's market cap was $40 billion, and it was about 58% of revenue. Yep. So 
I'm not going to peg the valuation, but that's how big this business is. Yeah. I'll update your numbers a little because we just had earnings. 2021, Tinder's revenue in 2021 was just shy of $1.7 billion. Tinder? <laughs> Yeah. 1.7 billion. Yeah. 22% growth on revenue year over year. So we're marching towards 2 billion. It's staggering. I will tell you, like just the scale of reach of Tinder and the amount of people it touches is mind boggling. And like you get into these numbers on swipes and matches and it's crazy. And the thing that attracts me to the opportunity is I honestly think we're just scratching the surface of how to like really evolve the experience and engage our members in a deeper way. And that to me is, is pretty exciting. Okay, here's the obvious questions that I have that I think most people listening probably also have. Okay. I have one question about the market and the other about the specific brand. Okay. The question about the market is that it seems to me that there is work to be done around a negative stigma towards meeting people online. Yep. I would say I have it. Yep. Maybe you even have it. Like this idea that love is spontaneous. Yep. That's the way that I think about it. Yep. It is that you want to meet someone in the way that has been romanticized to us. Yep. At the local library, at the coffee shop, save someone from falling into a gutter, whatever it is. Dorm party. Dorm party. <laughs> Dorm party. That's right. Yeah. And you are mechanizing something that is meant to be so happenstance. Yeah. And this is not actually how I feel, but I would say this is a common sentiment. Is that fair? I think it's a common sentiment that is in different stages globally. So I think in the US, the UK, Australia, I think we're further along in that journey of acceptance and understanding and it being more of the norm. I think in some of our markets in APAC, I would say, no, it's still a very stigmatized category on mm-hmm. the whole. And it's just not culturally, we're not there yet. But yeah, I mean, I think well, it's we're still doing arranged marriages around the world. So I think we're yeah. like in some ways pretty far from it. Right, yeah. right. It's fascinating. Like just the, in learning about the category and talking to young people across the world and seeing what they're looking for. But to me, for sure, that is something we have to continue to make that experience better so people don't feel that way. But like you bring up spontaneity. I think that's something that draws me to Tinder. A lot of other apps in the category are about like the first thing you do is you're filtering down, right? You're saying, I want somebody that's six feet tall. I want somebody that's this or that, or I'm taking some sort of SAT like test. You and I know that's not how, (laughs) that's not how it works, right? Most people, if you find them, you ask them about their partner, they'd say that I never guess that's who I would end it up with. And Tinder is not about filtering down. It's about showing you we're the largest, we're the most diverse platform. We're going to show you people that you are not going to come across in your day-to-day life. And we're going to expose you to people outside of your bubble. And I think there's a positive effect to that. And it's shown like there's been a rise in interracial marriages and relationships as a result of Tinder. And I think as a platform that believes fiercely in inclusivity, I think there's something too celebrating the fact that it's more about who you are, not what you are, or like some like preconceived notion of what you think you're looking for. And I think we can actually drive some of that spontaneity. Let me take that a step further, which going back to some of the stats that blew my mind, Mm -hmm. a study by The Knot reports that 30%, 30% of newly engaged couples have met through the Tinder app. Yeah. <laughs> you look at the New York Times like wedding section, you're going to see Tinder. A it lot. <laughs> also reports that couples who have met from online dating versus real life have lower divorce rates. That one's tricky to me. That feels like a bit of a misleading stat because people that have met on Tinder or any other dating app have generally been married for less amounts less of time. time. Yeah. 
right? Right. Still staggering. Yeah. Look, like we drive efficiencies in everything that we do in our life. Yeah. I don't have a dating app on my phone, so I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate. I have, and it just became a lot of work. Like it's just For overhead. Sure. Yeah. Just a lot of work. Right. But it's almost like making the argument, I want to go to the library because there's a sentimental feeling that books give me. I want to go to the grocery store yep. because I enjoy the process. There's a back to my roots argument uh-huh. that you could make that I think over time just becomes diluted. But man, does it make a lot of sense to me in the future? You can immediately filter for a set of criterias in and out that are interesting to you. Yeah. You also have to look at 18-year-olds, right? Like we're focused 18 to 24-year-olds, right? The profile of an 18-year-old right now and what they're doing, what they're looking for compared to when Tinder launched nine, 10 years ago, totally different, right? And it's going to be totally different two years from now and five years from now. And so like the role that technology plays in people's lives completely different. And so I think we have to make sure we evolve our platform and offering to supplement the, all the ways that people can meet each other. And I think online, it's a way to expand that, right? And so I think over time, I think it will continue to evolve and change, but I do think we can be a help as people are looking to make new connections. Yeah. And maybe it's just in my mind and it potentially still is if 30% of newly engaged couples are debunking my kind of like preconceived notions, but I still feel like there is a stigma of like, I met him or her on a dating app. I would say five, 10 years ago, I think people were making up different stories. I completely right? agree. And they the were, data is showing me right, that. And I right. didn't believe that until right. I started looking at the data. Right. So that was like broad category specific to Tinder. What I also realized that has changed from what you just said 10 years ago, which is that Tinder used to serve a different purpose for a different group of people than it does today. I think it used to be more transactional. It is not that way today. In fact, I think generally dating apps are not that way today. I think people use them for that purpose at times. Yep. But even if you, and I'm sorry, but I have to bring the movie up in my diligence last night. Of I watched course. Tinder Swindler. Of course, yeah. And after the whole movie, yeah. I watched the entire <laughs> thing. Yeah. And the main character, <laughs> she was looking for love on Tinder. Yeah. And the whole time I was thinking, I guess any press is good press. For, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. She's like, yeah, I'm still on Tinder. I'm all over Tinder. Right. She's like, I swipe, I swipe all the time. Right. I'm looking for love. Yeah. And so even after all of this, one by the way, one of the craziest stories oh I've God. ever seen. That yeah. guy's a real scumbag. She's like, this has nothing to do with Tinder. I love Tinder. Yeah. Like it's still making the marketplace that I want more efficient. Right. And it's still helping me achieve the means that I want, which is longer term love in a relationship. So even the specifics on Tinder as a brand, it feels like have changed and evolved from what it used to be. Yeah. I think the thing for me, like when I came in, I've heard people talk about a hookup stigma and, and other things. Like to me, it's more about Tinder isn't one thing. That's just the reality. If you talk to our members, yes, there are some people like it's short term. Some people it's Literally, like the number of people we see that travel and they use Tinder to meet new people just when they're in a new country, in a new city, just to do that. Or they move to a new place and they that's how they make friends. Or they met their longtime life partner. Whatever it is, the definition of success, I think, is v- too narrow in a lot of the other apps in the category. There's one outcome that they reward as success or they hold up as success. To me, I think we should celebrate all the ways people use Tinder as long as they're doing it respectfully, consensually, and you know, in a way that's not like the Tinder swindler, like in, in those cases. But like we should celebrate all the ways people use it. Cause like when you're 18, 19 years old, is it realistic for me to say like you should be looking for the one? When you make that point about the success criteria is too narrow, are you saying other brands in this space will say 
our goal is for you to delete the app. And the reason that that's the goal, or is that Tinder? Was that Tinder's? No, that's a different app. And different app. Yeah, yeah. And they'll say, we want you to delete this app because, well, the point I think they're trying to make is once you found the one, right, right. then you don't, you need, don't us need us anymore. anymore. Yeah, exactly. Which, hey, every app's got their own space. I just say like for us and the audience that we're going after, which is, like I said, 18 to 24 year olds is like kind of our square target. They're still like discovering things about themselves, about others. They're just looking to meet new people, expand their networks. And to us, it's more like we've defined our mission is is to keep the magic of human connection alive. And so that can mean a lot of different things. And so that's something that we feel strongly about. There's not just one definition of success out there and like all these different relationships. Like if you look through your life, like all these different things add up to who you are and these experiences that you have. I watched a commercial that you all put out of the woman meditating. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great commercial. Oh, thanks, thanks. I actually really liked it. <laughs> Are you brewing up in the lab right now your next big bet like you've done in previous companies? We're trying to build this brand the way that I know how to build a brand, which is get really clear on who we are. Like I said, our mission is to keep the magic of human connection alive. We believe everyone with an emphasis on everyone deserves to find a meaningful connection with someone new. And so for us, that means how are we going to go you know, serve our members better, whether that's through our investments and trust and safety features. Like we have more safety features. We don't necessarily always get credit for them, but like you can photo verify on Tinder. You don't have to be a celebrity to get a blue check. You can do a photo verification, get the blue check, feel better about who you are. You can load your contacts into Tinder and then block people if you don't want to see your ex on Tinder or hmm. you don't want them to see it's you. That's a cool feature. Right? Yeah. You can have control over your experience. We need to tell people about this stuff. We've got to explore. It's this whole new piece of real estate on Tinder where you can drop into different card stacks based on interests, free tonight. I'm a binge watcher, you know, I'm into XYZ, whatever, whatever it might be. Free tonight. Okay. Yeah. It's a Saturday night. I don't right. have anything going right. on. Right. Like, can we want to get coffee or drink or something? Super cool. Spotify music mode where you can put an anthem as people are swiping through you, your anthem's playing. So they have a better sense of who you are. Oh my God. It's like MySpace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's old is new again. There's a lot there that I think people that might've experienced Tinder before, don't realize that we've changed or we've upgraded. And so that's our job as a marketer is to build a brand around the vision that we have and go tell more people about it around the world. Uh, dude, we got to do a part two like a year or two in from now. Is that fair? Yeah, Where I, sure. I get to hear about whatever thing is in the lab right now. <laughs> I end all these things the same way. Are you hiring? What are you hiring for? Are there any key roles if someone listens to this is inspired uh, yeah. that you're hiring for? Go ahead. Yeah, I am building out a product marketing organization. Like I said, Tinder's doing more to evolve our product than we've ever done in our history. And so now we need product marketers to help us go tell those stories and like really bring those to life. So we're building out a product marketing organization. And then the other thing I'd say is Tinder is hiring engineers. And if you want to have an impact, you read the numbers. If you did like stat of number of engineers to number of members reached or subscribers reached, I challenge you to find a place you can make a bigger impact than Tinder as an engineer. You're going to come in and you're going to be able to do things that hit tens of millions of people every day. It's incredible. What does the word grit mean to you? To me, I think it's perseverance. I think everybody's got their things that pop up and hit them in life and we all have the ups and downs, but it, to me, it's how do you make your way through and fight your way through that to get to where you're trying to get to or, or make it through. And, and I think that's both personal life, work life, and something that hopefully I've been able to figure out at times, but I also look for in, in the people that I want to work with. George, thank you. Juven, this is awesome, man. Thanks for having me. That's it. Thanks for listening. 
If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. 